We've made mention of before, I'm a picky person. It's a confession, I know, I've got my issues, I'm picky. And if you're thinking, well, he doesn't like peas, we know that. That has nothing to do with being picky, that's just godliness. Um, but there are other things, there are other things. I am picky about the temperature when I sleep. I don't like it hot when I have to sleep. I'm also picky about uh, uh, humidity. If it's uh, hot outside, if, like in the south, my uh, dad and his wife live in the south, my brother lives in the south, and they just don't do temperature right. <laughs> it's just too humid. Um, I, I, have a, I have issues with the sound of chewing. I, I, ever since I was a kid, I have issues with the sound of chewing. Uh, people talking during a movie, can't stand it. Sticky tables at restaurants, really picky about that. I don't like that sound when you pull your elbow away and it just isn't right. I don't um, really enjoy drivers who tailgate, whether I'm in a different car or in the car when they're tailgating. Um, uh, loud parties that continue to make noise after a reasonable hour. By the way, a reasonable hour is whenever I want to go to sleep. Um, that is a reasonable hour. If I'm not careful, I will be that guy who says to children, get off my lawn. Um, we need to watch that. How about you? How about you? Are, are you picky? Do you struggle with that as well? Um, uh, maybe it's where you stay when you're traveling or what kind of cold cuts that you're willing to buy that you choose to buy. Maybe there's a part of town that you are picky about going to or a certain kind of store that we find ourselves uh, avoiding in this sermon series that we've been on, Unwanted God. We have been talking about being picky about God. We've taken a look at um, times in Scripture when people took issue with God's wisdom choosing their own wisdom instead of God's wisdom, saying, I, I get it, that's what you want us to do, but I don't want to do what you want us to do. Or that they were picky about God's transcendence, that it was too much to take on this God who is unknowable and only knowable through what God reveals, instead trying to manage him, trying to compact him into something that can be managed a lot more easily, compartmentalizing him. We looked at a situation where um, a person took issue with God's trustworthiness. That God had said, you know, this is the way it should happen. And, and the person goes up to a limit and then said, I, I don't trust God to follow through on this. And then even last week we took a look at uh, a situation where people took issue with God's holiness. God, you are the holy, holy, holy God but I think I might be more casual about the things that you're serious about. Taking issue, being picky about God. So are there other aspects of God that we've had problems with? Maybe we've taken issue with God's timing, his answer to our prayers, maybe God's sense of justice. Maybe we've even taken issue with God's extension of grace. Or maybe God's views on marriage. When it comes to it, though, no matter how much we might want God to be different, no matter how much we will try to refashion God into whatever we want Him to be, we will not change God. Any attempt on our part to craft a version of Christianity that fits our Specific preferences is futile. We might change a, a religion, 
We might change customs, but we cannot change God. We cannot change what God has laid out for the plan for the world. Today we're going to take a look at uh, our last installment in this series. A situation where people were taking issue with God's commandment to love. God's commandment to love. Our passage is going to be Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Now, the book of Revelation is a wonderful book of the Bible. And both Joss and I have communicated in the past that if you really want to know the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, all you really have to know is that God wins and we win with God. Period. It's what it's, God wins and we win with God. The, the book uses what they call apocalyptic language. And so there's a lot of symbolism being used. In the first chapter, we find out that John, the author, that John is experiencing a revelation from God. In fact, he says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he heard a voice. And it describes that John turned toward the voice, and, and there was this image of the risen, glorified Christ. And that part of his first message to John are these letters to the seven churches. This is chapter 2 and chapter 3. And the seven churches are these seven churches that were in Asia. And, and by the seven, we get this sense of that, that the individual letters were really meant to be then read by all the churches, and, and not just those seven churches, but for all the churches everywhere throughout all time. That these are letters to us. If you have your Bibles open... Um, let's go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 1. Let us hear the word of God. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicol, uh, excuse me, Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. May God bless the reading of his word. May God bless our time together. All right, so today we're going to talk a little bit about Jesus, a little bit about the Ephesian church, and a little bit about Northminster. Jesus, the Ephesian church, Northminster. Let's first talk about Jesus. We're told in the passage it describes Jesus this way. In fact, Jesus describes himself this way. Him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Can you imagine if you, if you were given a presentation and you got up behind whatever lectern or the microphone and you were standing before a bunch of people and, and you said, she who holds 
her nine iron and chips wonderfully, or whatever it might be. Jesus is declaring himself, and he's using symbolic language. What does it mean to hold the seven stars? Well, the seven stars, in fact, if we were to look at some of the words that occurs just before our passage, we find out that these are the angels. These are that there's a, an angel uh, connected to each church. We don't have a ton of information on this in the Bible. Um, but what we figure out is that, that these angels, that there's this connection between the heavenly realm and the earthly location of a congregation, a church. We've talked about it before, the already and the not yet. That when Jesus died on the cross and he was raised from the dead, that something already takes place. That through faith we have already been made into the image of God. That, that we, we are uh, God's children. That we are uh, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Already that happens. And yet there's a not yet. We're still waiting for Christ's return. But in the already, the congregation has an identity in the heavenly realms. That as an angel is connected to a church, the church is connected to an angel. And and in this connection, it's already true that there's this story of eternal relationship with God already established through Jesus Christ. And it says that Jesus holds those seven stars in his right hand. That he holds those seven angels in his right hand, which is a sign of sovereignty, that, that Jesus is over all of the churches. And he says he walks in the midst of the golden lampstands. Though each church would have this, this golden lampstand, not an actual one. This is just a way of talking about that this menorah, that, that the, each church would, um, is represented, that this is the mission of God working through that church, the light of God in the midst of the people of God. And Jesus as the one who then walks through them. Again, it's a picture of sovereignty. The basic idea, the foundational idea of the church then is that Jesus is sovereign over it. It's Jesus' church. It doesn't belong to the Ephesians. It doesn't belong to you or to me. It belongs to Jesus. Jesus is in charge. How do you feel about when someone in a large group like this asks you to repeat uh, after them, to actually say something? A little awkward, a little funny. You're not sure if you're the only one who's going to be doing it, but let's do it together. Let's just, even if you mutter it right now, could you say Jesus is in charge? Hey, that's, that's pretty good. Just to make sure that the people at home, because if you ever participate in something and watching it online, some of you go, I'm not going to say I'm all alone in my house. Should I really say it? Let's have them say it with us. So if you're participating online, we want you to actually say it with us right now that we're going to say Jesus is in charge. Let's say it together. Jesus is in charge. Even if you were to check out for the rest of the message, that's enough right there. Jesus is in charge. So let's turn to the Ephesian church and what does he have to say uh, to them? One of the first things we need to identify in each of these passages about the seven different churches is that God considers them together, that the congregation is being considered together. You know, in our country, we're so used to that individualized approach to everything that we can even approach church as though, well, I'm just here for what I can get out of it, and I'll get in my car, and I'll go to my house, and I'll have my week, and I'll come back maybe if it fits my calendar. And from God's perspective, that we're not just individuals, but we're identified together as a people, that this is an expression of the body of Christ. And so Jesus could talk to the church at Ephesus as 
a group, as a community. And so they're going to get a communal performance review. Exciting. Everybody just rushes toward their annual performance review. This time, however, it'll be declarative, 100% accurate, and it's the one that counts. And here's what he says. Here's what I have for you. This is, these are your strengths, what you're doing well, the way, the way you work, the way you toil, your patient endurance. Jesus calls out, listen, you tested those who call themselves apostles and found them to be false. There were these people who would walk around from one community to the next, and they had their own teaching, and yet they would slap on their, on, on their lapel. They would, they would say, I'm an apostle. I'm a messenger. I've got position. I've got authority. And the church at Ephesus was going, no, you're not. We've heard the teaching of Jesus. We know the teaching of Jesus, and we're going to call you out. And we talk, talk about this as being orthodoxy. Orthodoxy. It's this right belief. It's having the correct understanding, holding on to truth when the culture around you is calling you to tweak or to change or to let go of in order to fit its understanding of whatever truth they want to follow. And this church stood against it. In fact, Jesus said, you're bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Further on the passage, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans Notice it doesn't hate the people, but hate the works, as does Jesus. So in other words, they had a passion for the truth, a strong orthodoxy, right belief, truth. But they had an issue. They had an issue. And so we go on to the one, the one thing um, that Jesus identifies with them is this idea that I am missing a page of my sermon. Is it over there? It's probably back. You're all going, yes! <laughs> Jump to the conclusion. Jump to the conclusion. All right, it's probably back on my office table. The keys are right there. Um, everybody, Vicki Jordan. Let's hear it for Vicki Jordan, huh? Atta girl. It's so good. So when he talks about the thing that he has against them is that they've lost their first love. They've lost their first love. This is what I have against you. And it's not the idea that they lost the priority of love, but the love that they had at first. This kind of enthusiasm, this, this sense of being all in. They lost that passion, that connection. Maybe you know something of that kind of a situation. Maybe you've seen in your own life. Look at, she's got like 12 pages in her hand right now. We're here for a while, all right? I'm going to take this as a sign. We got to cover all of these things. Thanks, babe. Appreciate that. Yes. That is so good. That's the first time in 30 years that happened to me. In fact, uh, there's a... Uh, uh, a scholar in his commentary, Grant Osborne, he puts it this way, they had lost the first flush of enthusiasm and excitement in their Christian life. And they had settled into a cold orthodoxy with more surface strength than depth. Some people wonder, well, is this a love of God they lost or is it a love of others? And I fall in that camp that would say both. 
That's that cruciform of living. To love God is then to be called to love others. That in, in our love for God, that God loves us, and then we're called to embrace that love and with that love to love the people around us. That we were to, are to prioritize God's agenda for the relationships that we have in our lives. Do you hear that? That we would, and this happens with some folks when they first come to know Jesus, that there's such this all in, I'm all for you, I'm full bore, you've, you've loved me so much, I cannot help but love others because that's what you would want me to do. Prioritizing God's agenda for my relationship with others. All right, so let's talk about Northminster. Let's talk about Northminster. And I want to make an affirmation here. I want it to be known that, that I have experienced lots of love in this congregation. I've experienced lots of love for God and lots of love for others. In fact, do you know that our, finding, our, our foundational values, our defining values, this was settled upon some years back, but um, that we are a caring community, that we are faithful to Jesus, and that we trust in God. That God does big things, we're going to trust God for big things. That, that when, if Jesus, if we figure out Jesus said it, this congregation has a history of saying, let's do it. And, and that we work, we, we love, we want to care and connect with one another. I want to affirm that there's lots of love in this congregation. But I think if we pause, we might also find that there may have been a tendency in our midst, collectively, that we put limits on love. And we might say, well, who doesn't? Doesn't everybody put limits on love? Jesus doesn't. Jesus loves. He doesn't compromise love. He always loves. He moves forward in love. He's always about truth, absolutely. He never compromises truth, but he always moves forward in love. You know, some of the common limits I think we put on love is that if love becomes too costly, too awkward, or we've already judged against somebody, we just give ourselves permission to limit love. Too costly. Like, oh, I'm all in. I'm going to love you. I'm going to, oh gosh. Woo! That's way too much love. I'm out. And we tap out. Or if it's too awkward. Hey, I don't mind going across a room and greeting somebody, but invite them to breakfast afterward? Brunch? Have them in my home? Really get to know them? Open my life to them? That's a little awkward. I think I'll tap out again. Or if we've already judged against somebody, whether it's because of culture backgrounds or age differences or whatever it might be, and we've just said, I, before I even begin, let me just say I'm not going to. To the degree that we do this, we become the one who holds the star. We become and put ourselves in the position of, you know what, I'm in charge of this church and we're only going to do it to the level that I'm comfortable and that it doesn't cost too much and it's not too awkward and it's within my limits. And we become the ones who attempt to hold the star, the ones who walk around the lampstand and put the boundaries on our own congregation. Again, to the degree that that does exist, what if we wanted to change? What if we collectively what if as a congregation we said, that cannot be the story of this church? To whatever degree we've lost our first love, that all-in enthusiasm, full-on, full-bore ministry in the name of Jesus Christ, the sharing of the love of God, 
what would that look like? What would a way forward be like that? Well, it's laid out in our passage. The first word for us is remember. Remember. We're called to remember. For the Ephesian church, it was remember from where you have fallen. I, um, I, I know that there's a lot of people in here that love Disney World, okay? Love Disney World. I think that's awesome. Um, I grew up going to Disneyland on, on the other coast, and I remember as a kid, so I was in sixth grade, and I went to Disneyland for the first time. Loved it, you know? First time you go on the Pirates of the Caribbean. And remember, this is uh, way back when fun was playing with rocks, okay? So, so this is going in, and they had all these little robots and different things, and Disneyland was just fun, just amazing. So now when I go to Disneyland, I go, oh, geez, look at the lines. Do you see the price on those, on those snacks? You know, it's, look at all the people. And, and I've got, I get, I'm that grumpy old man again. And maybe that's what's occurred with us, that we had this start where we're like, wow, God is amazing. And now we call ourselves wise. We call ourselves grown up. And we've put limits on our, on our enthusiasm for God. But what if we were to remember? What if we could go back? What if I could go back into that sixth grader as he walked down Main Street and could see all the, and could see it from those eyes? What if I could go back? All right, so what is it to go back through personal memories? You see, some of us in this room, we know a time when our enthusiasm was high for God. When we were all in full bore, you said, name it, we're going to do it, God. I'm, I am for you. Maybe for some of us, that was back when we were kids or when we were in youth group or we went, when, um, maybe we went on a mission trip and we just knew when we were on that mission trip, we were doing things for Jesus that we never did at home. We were giving testimonies. We were, we were praying with people. We were getting to know people we never knew before. And we said, when I go home, I'm going to live differently. And then within about two or three months, we go, ah, that didn't work. Or maybe we went to a retreat and we had a bunch of people gather around us and we were sharing in stories and witnessing to each other. And we go, I know when I'm going to go back, I'm going to be a different person. And within a few more months or a year, then all of a sudden we find ourselves back in the same pattern. What if we go back to those times? What was true in those moments is true today about God's love. What if we could remember? For some of us, we don't have a personal memory. That's not part of our experience. We may be like an immigrant family where we're like the third or fourth generation of Christians. And so there's a story somewhere back. For us to remember the story, we're going to have to go back and talk to our grandmother, our grandfather. We're going to have to go back and hear the story of their great-grandparents. We have to gather that collective memory, that generational memory, and go, that's what it was like. They lived out their faith with a dynamism based on the love of God. In addition to personal memories and generational memories, I love borrowing memories. If I don't have them myself, I like to look to others who do have them. I, I'll include this information in this week's weekly update. And if you're not getting that, would you send me an email? I'll make sure you get on the list for that. But we send out a weekly update on Wednesdays. I'll include these names and maybe some books that go along with it. So there's a story of Helen Rosevere, or Hudson Taylor, or Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, or John Perkins. And when you read their stories these incredible relationships with God where they lived love out in a dynamic way in this world. When I read their stories, it ignites in me that understanding of living dynamically for God in this world. We could even just have a fresh read of the Gospels 
What if this week you went back and read the Gospel of John and you put yourself in the shoes of each person that Jesus touched or spoke to or healed and you just drank in that love and lived in response to who Jesus is and what he does? Remember, the second thing would be listen, that we would listen. Revelation 2, 7, at the very beginning, it says, he who has an ear, let that person hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen, listen. It's that kind of listening that goes into action. doesn't just hear words, but moves upon them, that we would listen. And by the way, on October 16th, we're going to start a sermon series that's going to be all about listening. It's going to call it, I believe it's, uh, uh, we're going to call it, um, Yes, We're Open. We're going to look at the beginning of the book of Acts and we look at these stories in the book of Acts and we're going to then spend time as a church together listening what God might have to say to us that we would listen. The third thing we can do is repent. We talked about this last week. It's a great word, a great word that means to, to turn 180 degrees. If I was going this way, now I need to go 180 degrees in the other way. If I was going away from God, now I go toward God. If I was going the way of just kind of a managed faith, now I go full bore. That we would repent. Last week we mentioned that repent involves confession and commitment. That it, it, it's saying, listen, I know I was, I've, been, I've been lackadaisical about my faith. I'm done with that. Now I'm committed to be all out for you, Jesus. Would you lead me into that new way of living? We would go from cold to hot, sleepy to wide awake, mitigated to full bore. Do you know that for me, during the pandemic, I had such a time. There was something that occurred in my own heart, my own understanding and mind, that um, my love for you, for this congregation, for Northminster, grew it, it, it's not like I didn't love the church before, but something switched. There was this, there was this sense of, I'm, I missed you. I, 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 I wanted to gather us together to meet, for us to meet each other where we are and to step into all that God has for us together. That we would collectively have this sense of, we're the people of God gathered for his praise. All right, so we remember, we listen, we repent, and then we do. We do. Do you remember, I, I've had stories with a number of people, not just in this congregation, but I've heard this phrase when it talks about children's ministry or ministry to youth, that there are, are times when we say, well, I did my time. <laughs> you know, I, I, I've given to that area of ministry before, and, I'm to, and, and it's like we, we've earned this badge. I'm done with that. I've I've helped the kids before, and now I'm just going to do what I want to do in church. Gosh, what would it be just to be so full-on, full-bore, loving others that we go, God, if there are kids in our midst, if there are youth in our midst, I want to sign up to do what I can do to further that ministry. And not all of us will be in the classroom, not all of us will do, but wouldn't it be great? We're looking for a kids coordinator right now. Wouldn't it be great when that person arrives, even before, that there's this long line of people knocking on the, on the door of the kids' core team going, you tell me what you need, I'm there for this. Full-on love. I am here to serve God's agenda. I'm going to prioritize his love in my relationship among the people of our church, children, families, youth, that we would walk across the room. So let's pour ourselves out toward other, others. We would walk across a room, across a building, across a street, and we would share ourselves, and in that share Jesus Christ that we would do these things, that we would revisit our calendars. 
Do you know our culture captures our calendars all the time? And, and, and when we let culture capture our calendars, we have a way of, of pushing the love of God, the love agenda of God aside. And all of a sudden, we, have to be, we find ourselves, without even thinking about it, we're fulfilling the cultural idea of our calendars. What would it be to bring God's priority of love and make sure that everything on our calendar is affected by that priority of love? Revisit our calendars. And finally, I would put out there that one other thing we could do is say yes to God. Just say yes to God. Let that be your rule. I'm going to say yes to God. If I read in here, let your light shine brightly, yes, God, I'll do that. Would you forgive people around you? Yes, God, I'll do that. Would you be my witnesses in this world? Yes, God, I'll do that. Would you be generous and kind and yes and yes, help me. The one thing we should absolutely be picky about, we started talking about being picky. The absolute thing we should be picky about is who God is, that we don't worship the wrong God. The Ephesian church had it right, stand for truth. But once we've answered the question of orthodoxy, then it is absolutely necessary that we embrace what they call orthopraxy, that we would do the works of God. So we might ask ourselves, do people see in us the love that people saw in Jesus Christ? Do people see in us the love people saw in Jesus Christ? It's important in the text it tells us at stake for the Ephesian church was the removal of a lampstand. That, that the shining community would, would have its shininess removed. And yet, a faithful response, it says that the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, that eternity awaits.